You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Fiona from Drake University. Here is our first story. Three to be inducted into Thomas Jefferson High School Hall of Fame by Tim Johnson. Three alumni will be inducted into the Thomas Jefferson High School Hall of Fame during a ceremony at 9 a.m. Friday, February 24th at, at the school the Hall of Fame committee has announced. The new inductees will be realtor and community leader Candy Smith-Narmy, military veteran and pilot James Wally Waltrip, and active military surgical services flight commander Marty Hensley-McTaggart. Members of the public are welcome to attend the ceremony in the school auditorium. Brief biographies of the honorees are given below. Candy Smith-Narmy. Candy Smith-Narmy graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1966 and received her associate degree at Iowa Western Community College's Clorinda campus. She then worked for AT&T Northwestern Bell as a phone center supervisor. She's been a licensed realtor since 1986. As a Thomas Jefferson student, she was an involved member of the choir and other activities. She received the Vocal Music Rotary Award, was president of the Red Cross, and a member of the Thespians. Narmi has been involved with a wide spectrum of civic and church organizations, such as the Omaha Symphony, Historic General Dodge House, Jocelyn Art Museum, Meals on Wheels, the former Christian Home, the St. Patrick Church Altar Society, Cookie Crumbs, and American Businesswoman. She was a member of the Bayless Park Renovation Committee. She was a 1989 graduate of the Real Estate Institute and was the 2010 Realtor of the Year, an honor given to realtors who have taken on an extra effort to improve the quality of life in their communities through volunteer work and other commendable causes. She has also received the Phil Dodge Award, given annually to one outstanding agent for their commitment to customer service, professional ethics, community involvement, and putting service over self. Narmi and her husband, John, reside in Council Bluffs. Together, they were selected by Pope Benedict to receive the highest award the Catholic Church bestows on clergy and laity dating back to 1888, the Ecclesia and Pontifice Honor. In 2013, they were again named recipients of the Pro-Ecclesia Pontifice Award from Pope Francis. Education is something she has emphasized. Her motto is, Education, the gift of a lifetime. She has contributed to her children's schools and made a considerable contribution to the bronze Thomas Jefferson statue that graces the Thomas Jefferson entrance. The Narmies have three married children, Joe, Anne, and Charles, whom they have instilled with the responsibility to give back to the community, lead life with determination, and to live life with a solid moral compass. They view their children as their true legacy. James Wally Waltrip James Wally Waltrip is a 1979 graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School. Wally grew up in Carter Lake and attended Carter Lake Elementary and Wilson Junior High. While at TJ, he was active on the Signal staff, National Honor Society, trade and college prep classes, and worked one year as a photographer for the Monticello. Upon graduation, he attended Millard Prep School in order to gain admission to the U.S. Air Force Academy. While there, he became captain of the demonstration squad on the wings of the Blue Parachute Team, accumulating 600 skydives. He graduated from the academy in 1984 with a Bachelor of Science degree in General Studies and earned a slot in undergraduate pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. From 1984 to 2006, he proudly served as a U.S. Air Force pilot. He was stationed at numerous stateside bases as well as Bentwaters Royal Air Force Base 
England, and Osan Air Base, Republic of Korea. During this time, Waltrip accumulated 2,600 2, hours flying the A-10 Warthog and was a weapons officer and instruction trainer. He also accumulated 2,500 hours in the T-37 Tweet as a pilot training instructor. His most satisfying takeaway from those 21-plus years of military service is that he effectively taught hundreds of young men and women how to fly and employ airplanes in the service of the United States Air Force. Upon his retirement from the military, he began his career as a commercial airline pilot. His first job was with Delta Airlines. He then switched to Southwest, where he is a captain with more than 10,000 commercial flying hours. Some of his favorite places to fly include Omaha, Tampa, Florida, and San Antonio, Texas. Being a student at Thomas Jefferson prepared me for my career by giving me a well-rounded education from chemistry to welding classes and how to form and sustain relationships with the people around me, Waltrip said. He has been blessed with two children, Stephanie and Christopher. Daughter Stephanie is currently married and living in Costa Rica, while his son Christopher and daughter-in-law Shannon reside in Phoenix. His father is the Honorable Jerry Waltrip, the mayor of Carter Lake. Marty Hensley McTaggart Marty Hensley McTaggart graduated from Thomas Jefferson in 1995. While in high school, she was active in volleyball, basketball, soccer, softball, cheerleading, chamber choir, and swing choir. She also worked at her family's restaurant, Duncan's Cafe, as a dishwasher and a bus girl. She also worked at her family's restaurant, Duncan's Cafe, as a dishwasher and a bus girl. During her high school career, she was also a sacker at High V and a cashier at Walgreens. She joined the military in 1995 as a security forces airman. Her 27 years of military experience include security forces for nuclear weapons, surgical technician and medical technician in the Air Force Reserves, clinical nurse in a medical surgical unit, and same-day surgery. She's been a flight commander and clinical nurse of Flight Medicine Clinic, operating room nurse and operations officer, and currently is head of the Surgical Services Flight. She's currently serving as the flight commander, 59th Surgical Services Flight, Joint Base Lackland, Texas. She was directly commissioned in 2006 and received her Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Allen College of Nursing in Waterloo. McTaggart has se- seen deployment to Operation Iraqi Freedom, Balad, Iraq, and Doha, Qatar, and participated in humanitarian missions in Angola, Chile, Linden, Guyana, and Panama City, Panama. Her major awards and decoration include Meritus Service Medal, Air and Space Commendation Medal, Air Reserve Meritus Service Medal, Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal, Nuclear Deterrence Operations Service Medal, Small Arms Expert Markship Award, Iraq Campaign Medal, and the Humanitarian Humanitarian Service Medal, to name a few. She is married to Sky McTaggart from Strawberry Point. She has four children, Madison, Reagan, Kennedy, and Lincoln. Her family also includes her mother, Carol Hensley, and her brothers, Keith and Gary, Gary Hensley, and their spouses, along with her nieces and nephews. There is also three photos depicted. Um, each one depicts one of the honorees. So the first is of Marty Hensley McTaggart. The next photo is of Candy Smith Narmi. And the final photo is of James Wally Waltrip. Casa of Southwest Iowa prepares to celebrate 25th anniversary by Tim Johnson. Casa, the court-appointed special advocate program of Southwest Iowa, is celebrating its 25th anniversary. The organization will hold an open house from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Monday, February 27th in the Burr Oak Conference Room at the Potawatomi Country Courthouse. 
CASA volunteers are specially screened and trained to speak up for abused and neglected children who have been placed in foster care. They study the background of a case, review documents, and interview all parties involved, including their child. The role is to look out for the best interest of the child, said Anne Christensen, who's in her 24th year as a coordinator. She succeeded Southwest Iowa's first coordinator, Sandy Pruitt. They don't have a hidden agenda other than they want to see them in a safe and good home, she said. In 2022, CASA of Southwest Iowa volunteers started, worked on, or finished a total of 52 cases, said Christensen. The program served 81 children with 36 volunteers. That's probably the most we've served in one year, she said. At any given time, the program usually has about 32 active cases, Christensen said. The Southwest Iowa program serves nine counties, but some have far fewer cases than others. But the method works. I've seen the outcome of the work of the CASA advocates, she said. They take one case at a time, and when health and human service workers are overloaded, that is something we can offer. The program is part of a collaboration between DHHS, attorneys, judges, and volunteers, Christensen said. We're seeing the children achieve permanency, whether it's going back with their family or establishing guardianship with someone else, she said. We're always training volunteers to be advocates for the families and kiddos. A family-first law dictates that children's families, relatives, or a close family friend are given priority before other families are considered for placement. Christensen concentrates mostly on recruiting and training volunteers, while her part-time assistant, Jamie Watts, compiles case information, keeps a record, and does whatever I need her to do, she said. She also works full-time as a dispatcher in the Potawatomi County Communications Center and volunteers as a CASA herself. There's always kind of two steps forward and three steps back with recruiting, Christensen said. It's a big commitment. We understand that. There's always some turnover, but there are volunteers who stick with it for the long term, Christensen said. I still have some people that have been with me for 12 years. Laura Faro was looking for a volunteer opportunity and started volunteering for CASA about a year and a half ago. CASA really offered a chance to make a one-on-one -on -one difference, she said. Faro's first case is wrapping up, but she's already started another one. Each case starts with getting everyone together and making sure they're all on the same page, she said. Building trust is part of developing a positive relationship with the family, including the children, Faro said. I've had children of various ages, including a baby, she said. They are just starting to recognize you a little bit. Some of the older children enjoy forming a friendship and doing things together. She mentioned one girl in particular. We played a game together the first time, and the second time I came back, she already had the game out, she said. That will help her tell the judge what the child is like, which is something they will ask, Faro said. The judge may call several hearings during a case, she said. Things can get tense when family members see things differently. Basically, I have to be advocating for the best interest of the child, and that's not always the best interest of someone else, she said. I'm not supposed to be the person who's solving the problem, and I can't, but I can at least record that. Before court, I will submit a report with strengths, concerns, recommendation, then the judge rules. Christensen holds frequent holds Christensen holds training frequently to prepare new volunteers for cases as soon as possible. Volunteers must be 18 and are required to complete 30 hours of training before being assigned a case, then 12 hours a year to continue as active advocates. We offer training four to six times a year and we coordinate with other programs, she said. Training is virtual now, so that eliminates the mileage. 
It consists of four virtual modules and one in person, Christensen said. The goal is to train them so they feel confident and we don't have to go to court with them, she said. She used to go to court with the volunteers regularly, but now rarely does. Casa of Southwest Iowa in started in 1997, serving only Potawatomi County, Christensen said. In 2002, it expanded to include Mills and Montgomery counties. Shelby, Cass, and Harrison were added in 2005, and Page and Vermont were in 2007. Audubon was added later. Christensen, Christensen has led the program through some tough times. On September 3, 2004, the Southwest Iowa Unit was shut down by the Iowa Child Advocacy Board, which oversees CASA programs statewide because of a lack of funds, although none of the other states' CASA programs were affected. On September 27th of that year, the Potawatomi County Board of Supervisors appropriated $6,000 to run the program temporarily and provided office space in the courthouse. Gorilla Wash and Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran Church held fundraisers, and several individuals donated money. They were administered by Friends of Iowa CASA. On November 15, 2004, the Iowa Child Advocacy Board resumed funding from the Southwest Iowa program. CASA has been passed around from one state agency to another at times, Christensen said. We were in all branches of the government in six months at one time, she said. They didn't know what to do with us. There was a time when they wanted us to scale down to fewer counties. Our judges have changed over the years, but they've all been supported. The Southwest Iowa Programs Office has also moved several times. It was originally in the Omni Center Business Park and later moved to the county attorney's office, the third floor of the courthouse, the county administration building, which has since been torn down to make way for construction of a new building for the Potawatomi County Department of Public Health and is currently in a locked corridor on the main floor of the courthouse. There are also three photos included, or two photos included. Um, so the first one, CASA assistant Jamie Watts, volunteer Laura Faro, and coordinator Ann Christensen discussed the program during a meeting on Friday, February 17, 2023, in a conference room at the Potawatomi County Courthouse. In the next photo, um, Jamie Watts, Laura Faro, and Ann Christensen discussed challenges of working child welfare cases on Friday, February 17th in a conference courtroom at Potawatomi County Courthouse. Our next story, February 21st, face of the day, Luscious the dog. Don't let Luscious, Luscious's tough exterior fool you. It doesn't take people long to realize he's a wiggle butt who loves attention and is ready to be part of your family. Luscious is a six-year-old neutered male pit bull mix who is available for adoption at Millen's Humane Society, 1020 Railroad Ave. Luscious is an adult dog, and his adoption fee is $150, which covers microchip, age-appropriate vaccines, and spaying or neutering. He will need to be adopted in an area without a breed ban. In other shelter news, Midlands and Leadership Council Bluffs are teaming up to host Discs for Dogs, a disc golf fundraiser tournament to benefit the shelter at Iowa Western Community College on May 6th. The tournament begins at 9 a.m. and will take place, place at the Treasure Cove Disc Golf Course on campus. The fun and fundraising will continue the next weekend as Midland's annual gala will take place at the Mid-America Center on May 12th. Registration and other information for both events can be found on the Midland's website. More information about Fostering, volunteering, and donation opportunities can be found at MidlandsHumaneSociety.org or by calling 712-396-2270.
Like their Facebook page to keep up with the daily shelter news. The shelter can also be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter and at Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. And then there is a photo of Luscious the dog. He is a pit bull with gray and white fur. Forecast, Tuesday will be the warmest day this week. Today will be mostly sunny with a high near 45 and wind gusts as high as 24 miles per hour, according to the National Weather Service. It's the warmest day in the forecast period, the Weather Service said in its forecast discussion. Tonight we'll see increasing clouds and a low near 31. A significant winter storm remains on track to impact the area beginning Wednesday and continuing into Thursday, the forecast discussion said. Rain, freezing rain, and eventually snow is expected locally. The forecast according to the Weather Service. Today, mostly sunny with a high near 45. Northeast wind 6 to 11 miles per hour becoming south-southeast 12 to 17 miles per hour in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 24 miles per hour. Tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 31. Southeast wind 10 to 14 miles per hour becoming northeast after midnight. Winds could gust as high as 21 miles per hour. Wednesday, rain likely mainly afternoon. Cloudy with a high near 37. Breezy with a northeast wind 15 to 18 miles per hour with gusts as high as 29 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 70%. New precipitation amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch possible. Wednesday night, rain, freezing rain, and sleet before 11 p.m., then rain or freezing rain between 11 p.m. and midnight, then snow after midnight. Low around 12. Windy. Chance of precipitation is 80%. New precipitation amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch possible. Thursday, partly sunny with a high near 20. Windy. Thursday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 1. Blustery. Friday, a slight chance of snow afternoon. Mostly cloudy with a high near 22. Friday night, partly cloudy with a low around 15. Saturday, sunny with a high near 43. Saturday night, mostly clear with a low around 23. Sunday, sunny with a high near 45. Our next story is Southwest Expressway Reconstruction to begin in March. The City of Council Bluffs is reconstructing the South Expressway beginning this March. The project aims to establish a more urban design standard with new roadway pavement, drainage improvements, and street lighting. In addition to the reconstruction, the city is adding a multi-use concrete trail to the east side of the South Expressway from north of the I-80 to I-29 ramps to 23rd Avenue. The city is phasing the project to allow one lane in each direction, northbound and southbound, to remain open during construction. Turning movements and the traffic signal at 23rd Avenue will be maintained during construction. The project will begin in early March and will be substantially complete in November of 2023. You are listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 21st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Fiona from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Next, obituaries. Frank Espinoza. Frank Espinoza, age 93, of Clinton, Iowa, formerly from Council Bluffs, passed away Wednesday, February 15, 2023, at Eagle Point Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Frank, one of 14 children, was born on December 3, 1929, in Council Bluffs to Bernardo 
Ben, and Catherine Rayner Espinoza. He graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in Council Bluffs. He served with the U.S. Navy during the Korean War from 1953 to 1958. He was an electrician third class on the USS Los Angeles, California 135A cruiser. The ship survived two separate hits on March and April of 1953 with 18 casualties. All survived and made full recoveries. Frank married Lucille Meredith in 1958. A son, Stephen, was born from this union. The marriage ended. He later married Janice Jan Granzen, originally from Clinton, on July 7, 1979, in Council Bluffs. In 1958, they moved to Forsyth. He and Jan were members of the Telephone Pioneers of America and Friends of Lake, Tallycomo in Branson, Missouri. He also volunteered at the Branson Chamber of Commerce for over four years. Frank enjoyed going to the USS LA reunions, which were held in different cities every four years, even hosting one in Branson in 2003 and served as president 2004 to 2006. He enjoyed playing cards, fishing, gardening, and puttering around in the garage. He was a bricklayer for 36 years, and building fireplaces was his favorite. Said it was like putting puzzles together. Last year, he received a Bricklayers Award for being a member of the BAC International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Crafts Workers for over 60 years. In 2013, they moved to Clinton, Jam's hometown, to spend their retirement years. In 2015, one of the highlights of his life was the Honor Guard flight to Washington, D.C., accompanied by his, by his guide, Chris Yingling, from Savannah. Many, made, new, made many new friends, made many new friends, loved to travel. He just enjoyed life and all it had to offer. He was just a fun-loving guy. He was preceded in death by his parents, six sisters, baby Helen, Margaret, Judkins, Lucille Ellerbach, Mary McDonald, Dorothy Hempel, and Marshall Lee. Five brothers, John, Fred, Robert, George, and Joseph. Frank is survived by his wife, Jan, his son, Stephen Espinoza of San Diego, California, a brother, James, of Laguna Woods, California, a sister, Helen Sosa, of Council Bluffs, and many nieces and nephews. Visitation will be Friday, February 24th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Pape Funeral Home. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 25th, also at the funeral home. Cremation will follow the services. A luncheon will follow. Burial will be at the Rock Island Arsenal at a later date. Donations can be made to the Eagle Point Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Clinton or Hospice in Davenport, Iowa. Our thanks to everyone at Eagle Point Center and the Hospice Online condolences may be left at www.papefh.com. Geraldine Jones. Geraldine Jones, 83, of Neola, Iowa, passed away peacefully in his home on February 16, 2023. Gerald, also known as Jerry, was born on December 18, 1939, to Vern and Dessa Jones of Allen. Gerald attended Allen High School and had many treasured lifelong friendships with the class of 1959. Gerald and his family were members of the Springbank Friends Church in Allen. He began work at Western Electric in Omaha, Nebraska in the summer of 1959 as a tool and die maker until his retirement 42 years later. Preceding him in death were his parents, Vernon Dessa Jones, and his siblings, Miriam, Marjorie, Donald, Wayne, and Robert.
Gerald is survived by his wife, Elaine, daughters, Terry Scope of Cape Corral, and Kelly Schneegas of Neola, sons of Gregory Jones of Pueblo, Colorado, and Kevin Jones of Colorado Springs, Colorado, grandchildren, Tara Sop, Morgan Trim, Craig Nelson, McKinley Allen, Madeline Jones, Garrett Jones, great-grandchildren, Tatum Soap Cope, Channing Soap Cope, Karsten Trim, Cameron Trim, Aubrey Nelson, Oliver Nelson, and famous baby Lawson Allen. He was also blessed with step-grandchildren, Leanna Saad and their girls, Sydney and Zoe, and Bryant Schneegas. Gerald is also survived by brothers and sisters-in-law, Lahoma Hart, Rose Joyce Hatcher, James Hart, Aubrey Hart, Carl Hart, Connie Michaela, Randall Hart, Myrna Jones, and Mary Jones. Gerald was also blessed with many nieces and nephews, cousins, and lifelong friends. Visitation will be at Hoykulnowski Funeral Home Tuesday, February 21st from 5 to 7 p.m. Funeral services will be held at Hoykulnowski Funeral Home in Council Bluffs on Wednesday, February 22nd at 11 a.m. Interment will be held at Neola Cemetery in lieu of flowers, the family suggests memorial contributions to Neola Fire and Rescue. Donna Holly Donna Holly, 84, of Council Bluffs, passed away on February 16, 2023, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. She was born November 30, 1938, and raised in Council Bluffs to the late Allenson and Wil- Wilhelmina Beach. Donna graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1956. Donna was a proud member of St. John Lutheran Church. She worked at Jenny Edmondson Hospital for over 40 years as an office worker, with her last position being in nursing services. Her last six years were spent working at Recent Sun as a receptionist. Donna was a strong-willed, independent, and opinionated woman who was known for her love of the Hawkeyes, Judge Judy, and of course, her beloved dog, Charlie. Her most cherished memories were spent at the Lake of the Ozarks with her friends. In addition to her parents, Donna was preceded in death by her late husband, George Holly, whom she married on June 9, 1971. George Holly passed away in July of 2013. Donna was also preceded in death by her daughter, Lori Annette Frank, who passed away in 1996. Donna is survived by her daughters, Cynthia Alman and Susan Farrell. Her grandchildren, Benjamin McCall, Joseph McCall, Lindsay McCall, and Riley Alman. Her great-grandchildren, Jalen Kerbeen, Bentel McCall, Madeline McCall, Maximus Kilbane, William McCall, and Eloise McCall. Please join us Wednesday, February 22, 2023, at 11 a.m. at St. John Lutheran Church. Reverend E. John Benson, pastor, will officiate. A luncheon will immediately follow the service. Memorials are suggested to St. John Lutheran Church or Midlands Humane Society. William J. Bill Mice William J. Bill Mice, age 81, of Crescent, Iowa, passed away February 16, 2023, at Emanuel Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. Bill was born September 7, 1941, in Ramson, Iowa, to the late Ray and Catherine Meese. He married Marion on, thir- on July 13, 1961, in St. Joseph Catholic Church, Granville, Iowa. They were blessed with two children, Lori and Troy. Bill owned and operated Mice Tool Company, where he designed and manufactured tools since 1967. He was a member of Mary Immaculate Catholic Church in Omaha. In addition to his parents, Bill was preceded 
in death by his wife Marion Meese in 2021 and his brothers Rob and Bob and Ron Meese. In addition to his parents, Bill was preceded in death by his wife Marion Meese in 2021 and his brothers Bob and Ron Meese. Bill is survived by his daughters Lori, Eric, son Troy Meese, all of Crescent, four grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, his sister Mary Coob of Omaha, brothers Ken Meese of Council Bluffs, Tommy Meese of Crescent, many nieces and nephews. Recitation Recitation of Rosary, Wednesday, 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill, Mayor Woodring, Bayless Park Chapel. Mass of Christian Burial, Thursday, 10 a.m. at Mary Immaculate Catholic Church, 7745 Military Avenue, Omaha Interment, St. Bridges Cemetery, Honey Creek, Iowa. A lunch will follow at the Rand Community Center in Missouri Valley, Iowa. The family will direct memorial contributions. Rita Joan Lenehan Hermsen. Rita Joan Lenehan Hermsen, age 74, passed away on February 14, 2023. Mrs. Hermsen was born in Council Bluffs on February 4, 1949. She graduated from St. Albert High School in Council Bluffs and the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Rita was a member of St. Robert Bellarmine Church. She was involved in many charities and community organizations. She enjoyed traveling, spending winters in Florida, and spending time with family. She is preceded in death by her parents, John and Joan Lenihan, brother Williams, daughter-in-law Alicia, Alicia Hermsen. Rita is survived by her loving husband, Roger, her children, Leah Olson, Matt, and Ryan, brother Matthew of Brother Matthew Lenihan of Council Bluffs, eight grandchildren. Visitation, Tuesday, February 21st, 6 p.m., followed by a vigil at 7.30 p.m. Mass of Christensen Burial, Wednesday, February 22nd, 10 a.m., all at St. Robert Bellarmine Catholic Church, 11802 Pacific Street Interment, Resurrection Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials are suggested to the Father Shane Education Endowment, 11802 Pacific St. Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or Essential Pregnancy Services, 3171 North 93rd Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68134. Bob Orange Bradley. Bob Orange Bradley, age 82, passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family, on February 14, 2023, in Omaha, Nebraska. Bob was born on June 22, 1940, in the rural part of Arlington, Iowa, to the late Frank E. and Ava M. Bradley. He was the ninth child of 11 siblings. Bob was preceded in death by his wife, Peggy, his parents, Frank and Eva, his siblings, Carla, Ira, Lester, Vern, Doreen, Laquelle, and Luella, and Zella. Bob will be loved and dearly missed by surviving children, Bobby Van Brunt of Bennington, Nebraska, Mark Bradley of Council Bluffs, three stepchildren, James Bramlett of Apache Junction, Arizona, Jeff Bramlett of Round Rock, Texas, and Cherry Ablin of Omaha, his beloved dog Jeannie, siblings Lloyd Bradley of Green, Iowa, John Jean Bradley of Easton, Pennsylvania, and Jenny Davis of Crescent, Iowa, his 14 grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. Memorial visitation will be held Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill, Meyer Woodring, Bayless Park Chapel. No funeral service. Family graveside only. 
Bob, along with his wife Peggy, will be forever in our hearts and laid to rest at the Crescent, Iowa Cemetery. And now on to sports. State Tournament Bowling. Lynx Trio ends season at state by Austin Heinen. The three Lynx State Bowlers and Coach Corian Johnson are all smiles after Monday's Class 3A individual tournament. Three Abraham Lincoln Bowlers brought their seasons to a close on Monday's individual state bowling tournament at Waterloo's Maple Lanes Bowling Center. Though the Lynx didn't have any of the bowlers crack the top eight, thus bringing the season to a close, Lynx coach Corinne Johnson was happy with how her two seniors, Eric McCoy and Bennett Olson, performed at state. I was very happy for Eric and Bennett to qualify for state again, Johnson said. It being their senior year, our initial goal was to bring the whole boys team up for state this year, but we got half the team here this year, and having Josh qualify was great as well. I'm extremely proud of them all. Olsen, in his third state tournament appearance, placed 13th out of 32 bowlers with a three-game score of 647, and his best game was a 219. Though the senior fell short of his goal of making the bracket, the senior is still happy to have his high school career close at the state tournament and among two state qualifying teammates. Playing with my teammates really helped today, Olson said. They really checked me. They really helped me keep my mental game in check. Overall, I think I bowled very well. I think I still could have done a bit better. I didn't reach my goal, but it's also just nice to make it here about three years in a row. I'm happy about that. One of those teammates was McCoy, who placed 22nd with a score of 591. McCoy, like Olsen, was happy to close his career on the state's biggest stage of high school bowling. It's truly awesome to be here, McCoy said. Bottom line, we're here for fun and for having a good time. There were a lot of nerves going into today, but this earning, but just earning a spot to play here is huge. Iowa women's basketball, two Hawkeyes will utilize extra year by Steve Bat- Batterson. In the midst of chasing a Big Ten championship and preparing for Tuesday's game at 7th-ranked Maryland, two Iowa women's basketball players are looking ahead. Two seniors who start for the 6th-ranked Hawkeyes guards, Kate Martin and Gabby Marshall, announced Monday they will return for an additional year of eligibility next season. Both use the same words to describe their decisions to take advantage of the extra year of eligibility the NCAA granted all students, athletes who were competing at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Martin and Marshall described it as a no-brainer. For Martin, the opportunity to play as a six-year senior provides her with a chance to complete her master's degree and complete college debt-free. For Marshall, a fifth season on the court with the Hawkeyes simply made sense. Why not enjoy college as long as you can, Marshall said. To be a part of a special team and to get the chance to continue to be on the court with my friends, it was an easy decision, no-brainer. Marshall said she reached her decision prior to the start of the Iowa's 22-5 season, while Martin decided while Martin arrived at the same conclusion in January. I went back and forth on it with I went back and forth on it a bit, but in talking things over with my family and reflecting on what my goals are, it was a no-brainer, Martin said. When I think about being done with basketball and about all the hard work I've put in, coming back for a sixth year makes sense. Falcons place third, Saints fall in quarters by Austin Heinen. In a historic day for the St. Albert's bowling programs, the Falcons placed third after winning two of their three duels, and the Saints brought home some hardware as well, falling in a tough battle against Clarinda. At the end of the day, we'll look back on this as a special moment, St. Albert co-coach Mike Klusman said. 
For both the boys and girls, I'm proud of them, and it's a great day for the St. Albert Bowling Program. Not going to lie, we hoped that we would finish a little better, St. Albert co-coach Justin Pinky said. Obviously, third place is still a great thing for our boys, and I'm proud of them for the season they had, as well as the girls, in their first tournament appearance. The Falcons earned the three seed after scoring a three, 3,122 through 15 Baker games. The first opponent was Comanche, the team in which the Falcons fell in a 3-2 heartbreaker in last year's state quarterfinal round. The Falcons got off to a slow start in the game, in game one, but rallied back to win game one and then the next two games over the storm to advance to the semifinals. The Falcons faced the second, the second Makota for a match that would decide who would move on to the Class 1A final. The Falcons flew out to a strong 20-series lead, but history unfortunately repeated itself for the Falcons as the Cardinals made a furious rally to win the next three games. Sometimes that's just bowling, Pinky said. Sometimes you just don't get the, bre- the breaks, and in those final three games, we didn't get a break. Despite the disappointment of falling short of the title match, the Falcons battled Louisiana Muscatine in the consolation duel. The Falcons rolled through LM to end the team season with a win and a third-place finish, the best in Falcon bowling history. It kind of hurts that we got third place after having two games on Makota, said senior Adam Denny. Even though it wasn't the trophy we wanted, it's a trophy, and we're happy to have it and finish better than last season. Um, There is a photo attached with the Falcons holding their third-place trophy at the end of Monday's Class 1A team tournament. Fault wins 10K race in Bluffs track club run on Saturday. Logan Fault of Beluva, Nebraska and Karen Crocher of Council Bluffs were the male and female leaders in Bluffs track clubs 10 kilometers race Saturday, February 18th at Lake Manawa. Cody Smith and Danny Arroyo, both of CB, were the male and female two-mile winners. Next up for the BTC, it's annual CB13 mile run on March 4th. That race, which is celebrating 50 years this year, will be added to the regular 2-mile and 10K offerings that all day. All races are $5 per entry, and they all begin at 10 a.m. at Lake Manawa's North Shore area. Enter the park at South 11th Street and proceed through the raised traffic barriers to the parking lot. For more information, visit Bluffs Track Club page on Facebook. Here are the results from February 18th, 10K results. First, Logan Fault, Bellevue, 1929 male, 4215. Second, DeMont Ferry, 50 to 59 M, 435. Three, Chris Arahus, Omaha, 50 to 59 M, 4338. Four, John Milstead, Omaha, 30 to 39 M, 40 to 4558. Fifth, Karen Crossfer, CB, 50 to 59 F, 4903. Six, Andrew Codney, CB, 30 to 39 M, 5029. Seventh, Justin Wacker, CB, 4049 M, 50 to 54. Eighth, Ron Lamp, Omaha, 50, 40 to 49 M, 5106. Ninth, Ty Reimers, Omaha, 40 to 49 M, 57, 14, tenth. Simon Falcon, Omaha, 30 to 39 M, 67, 36. 11, B sides, Omaha, 70 plus F, 70, 41. Two mile result, Cody Smith, CB, 15, 18 M, 13, 18. Second, Connor Hyde, 
track CB 15 to 18 M 47 43. Third, Danny Oroyo, CB 30 to 39 F 1509. Fourth, Bailey Shep, CB 39 39 F 1631. Fifth, Emily Billings, CB 15 to 18 F 17 to 28. Sixth, Sarah Corbella, CB 15 18 F 1741. Seventh, Sherry Noir Omaha, 60 to 69 F, 2348. Monty Matthews Omaha, 60 to 69 M, 2444. Ninth, Gib Whitland CB, 70 plus M, 2536. And there is a photo attached of Logan Fall of Bellanu, who won the BTC's 10K race in 42:15 Saturday, February 18th. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you had any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Fiona from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you so much for listening.
In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, flu season should be winding down, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are warning about a second wave of influenza peaking in the southeastern U.S. Earlier this year, tests showed that the most common strain of flu virus was H1N1. Now, however, the H3N2 strain is becoming more common. That's the strain that caused such a terrible flu season last year. Both strains are covered in this year's flu vaccine, and experts report that the flu shot reduced the number of cases that needed medical attention by 47%. There is a new oral antiviral drug this year called Zofluza. One dose is all that's necessary to shorten the duration of influenza symptoms. The first really new antidepressant recently won FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression. S-ketamine nasal spray will be sold under the brand name Spravato. Physicians and patients have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of this new type of antidepressant. They may be shocked by the price. People starting on this medication will need twice-a-week dosing for the first month. The list price is roughly $600 to $900 per dose. That means the initial month could cost as much as $6,800. After that, people will require once-weekly or twice-monthly nasal spray administration. Those costs would range from $2,300 to $3,500. At the end of a year, Spravato could end up costing $45,000. Some insurance companies may balk at that expense. For years, health experts have been telling people that exercise is critical for good health and that walking is great exercise. Dog ownership can contribute. People who walk their dogs regularly get more exercise than people without pets. A study published in JAMA Surgery highlighted a downside of this otherwise pleasant activity, however. Dog ownership has increased in the U.S. over the last decade, but so have broken bones among older people out walking their dogs. Such fractures doubled between 2004 and 2017, with the majority of broken bones in women. About half of the breaks were in arms, wrists, or fingers. The other fractures, unfortunately, were more concerning. About 17% of the broken bones were hips, a situation that can have serious negative consequences for a person's mobility or even survival. The scientists recommend obedience training for pets so that they don't tug at the leash suddenly and tip a person over. In addition, it makes sense to match the dog and its temperament to the strength of the owner. Week after week, the FDA has announced recalls of contaminated blood pressure drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. So many lots of Valsartan, Herbisartan, and Losartan have been removed from the market that there are serious shortages. To cope with this growing problem, the FDA has expedited the review of additional R products. This week, the agency announced that it had approved a new generic Valsartan from Alchem Laboratories in India. The FDA reports that its evaluation of Alchem's manufacturing process does not indicate a likelihood of contamination with nitrosamine carcinogens. New technology that allows for non-invasive imaging of the retina may allow eye doctors to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. The retina is richly supplied with blood through a dense network of fine blood vessels. In Alzheimer's disease, however, this network thins and becomes more sparse. Possibly, this reflects what's happening elsewhere in the brain as well. 
The imaging is optical coherence tomography and geography. Researchers at the Duke Eye Center compared the retinas of 39 people with Alzheimer's disease to the retinas of 37 people with mild cognitive impairment and 133 people with healthy cognitive function. In addition to the loss of tiny blood vessels in the retina, a specific layer of the retina was thinner in people with Alzheimer's disease. These changes did not show up in people with mild cognitive impairment. This is the second time within the past few months we've heard about the possibility that optical coherence tomography and geography may offer an early diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. And the first article we're going to read from the book is entitled Exploring Iowa. Located in the heart of America, Iowa is the land between two rivers, a region of the Midwest distinguished by a surprisingly rich, diverse cultural and culinary history. Between the forests of the eastern United States and the grasslands of the Great Plains to the west, Iowa's gently rolling landscape extends westward from the Mississippi River which forms the state's entire eastern border. The Missouri River forms the western border, making Iowa the only U.S. state with two parallel rivers defining its borders. Rivers were the early highways, bringing explorers, trappers, traders, and settlers to the Iowa prairie. Centuries before the Europeans arrived, however, various Native American tribes, including the Sac, Fox, Sioux, Iowa, Nisquaki, and others, lived, hunted, and farmed across the region. The meaning of the name Iowa depends on who you ask. Traditionally, it has been described as an Iowa word, meaning the beautiful land. Although others say that Iowa itself is the French spelling of Ayuawa, a name meaning sleepy ones, a name given in jest to the Iowa tribe by the Dakota Sioux. Living off the land defined the food and farming traditions of the tribes like the Iowa whose history is carefully recreated at Living History Farms in Urbandale. Iowa farmers raised corn, beans, melons, and squash. Women did the farming in the Iowa culture, while men were responsible for hunting and making tools. Iowa families were subsistence farmers, raising just enough for their family to survive throughout the year and having a little put away in case of a bad year. The Iowa had separate summer, winter, and traveling lodges. Bark houses called Nachachi kept the Iowa cool during hot summer months, while winter mat houses called Chakiruta, made from layers of sown cattail leaves, protected the Iowa from harsh winters and stayed around 50 degrees inside. While traveling on hunting expeditions, the Iowa lived in a Chibothraji, or teepee, made from buffalo hides. Their villages also contained sweat lodges, food drying racks, cooking areas, work areas, hide scraping rocks, 
pottery pits, and gardens. At Living History Farms, historical interpreters at the 1700 Iowa Farm discuss hunting, hide processing, fur trading, tool making, gardening, food processing, and the roles that Iowa men and women played in each. Interpreters used both recreated bone and stone tools and reproduced trade items to perform daily tasks. By the era of the 1700 Iowa farm depicted at Living History Farms, the first Europeans had seen the land that would become Iowa. Had history taken a different course centuries ago, Iowans might be known for their unique brand of French cuisine with a distinctly Midwestern flair. In the late 1600s, European explorers began paddling up and down the Mississippi River, passing along Iowa's eastern border. The first to visit Iowa were Frenchmen. Louis Joliet led a crew accompanied by Father Marquette, a Catholic priest. In 1673, the expedition arrived in the area that includes Pikes Peak State Park near the Iowa town of McGregor. It would be almost 150 years after Marquette and Joliet sailed along Iowa's eastern border before white settlers began moving inland to farm Iowa's incredibly rich topsoil. In the meantime, trappers and traders began exploring the rivers that fed into the mighty Mississippi. The French established some trading posts that would grow into Midwestern cities, including St. Paul, Minnesota, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and St. Louis, Missouri. In the 1780s, a young Frenchman named Julien Dubuque learned that there were French there, there were rich deposits of lead ore on the west side of the Mississippi River near Prairie du Chien. Lead was valuable because it was used to make ammunition for guns and cannons. Dubuque lived among the Native Americans in the area and mined the ore. Dubuque set up lead mines near the location of the city that bears his name and lived in the area until he died in 1810. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Mulsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson.
Some would call 88-year-old Sally Jackson a lucky senior. A few years ago, a family member offered to move in and care for Sally so that she wouldn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. But soon after, one of Sally's neighbors, Carol, paid a visit, unannounced. Something wasn't quite right. Sally's demeanor and physical appearance had changed. Luckily, Carol was aware of warning signs that might signal elder abuse. Such as bruises, poor hygiene, isolation, depression, appearing withdrawn or unusually quiet, as if to hide something. When victimized, elderly people often feel ashamed, confused. But an alert neighbor helped Sally. Not all abused seniors are as lucky as Sally Jackson. McGruff the Crime Dog here. The National Crime Prevention Council wants to help you and your loved ones prevent elder abuse. Know what to look for. Know how to report it to local law enforcement agencies. To learn more, go to ncpc.org forward slash seniors. That's ncpc.org slash seniors. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Department of Justice.